Uh, let's pray as we come to God's word uh, this evening. Heavenly Father, uh, we give you praise and give you thanks uh, for your word. Uh, we give you thanks for Christmas as we have an opportunity just to stop and to reflect of what it means uh, for the Lord Jesus uh, to come into this world to save us and to redeem us, uh, to adopt us as your children, uh, to bring us into your family. And we just pray this evening, please help us to hear you speak to us, um, encourage us, uh, Lord, point us to the Lord Jesus. And Lord God, I pray, uh, Lord God, soften our hearts, Lord, turn our minds uh, to Christ, uh, Lord, make us more like Christ, we pray. Uh, because we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you ever talk to me about Christmas, one of the things I love about Christmas are the different traditions of Christmas all over the world. Uh, one of those traditions is in a place, um, Catalonia, which is where Barcelona is in Spain. Uh, nativities, Christmas nativities are really popular in Catalonia. But in each of the nativities, they actually put a character. They put something called a kaganer into the nativity. And the kaganer is a small figure. So there's a nativity there, beautiful little nativity scene. But in the middle of the nativity, they put a kaganer, which is a small man who is defecating, who is doing a poo. And they do that because it's supposed to represent growth. Um, in Catalonia and Barcelona, same place, they also display something called the Tito de Natal, which is otherwise known as the pooping log. And the pooping log is decorated with a face, there's a blanket that's put on it, and on Christmas Eve, the log is placed into a fire and it's then beaten with sticks. Um, we love um, our, our Christmas dinner um, here in Australia. Uh, but also people in Greenland always enjoy Christmas dinner as well. They enjoy something traditional called muktuk. Um, here's the stuffing for muktuk, which is raw whale skin served with blubber and kiviak, which is 500 dead auk birds. And all of that is stuffed into seal skin and left to ferment for seven months. Mm-mm. Um, what about us? What, what do you like to eat uh, for Christmas? Um, do you have some crayfish or some turkey? Maybe you have some chicken or some duck? Or, or maybe you have some turducken. Anybody have a turducken before? Turkey, duck, and chicken all squished into the same? No piece of meat? No, there was lots of people this morning at church, but what about that one there? The tur bacon duckin. What about that one there? Um, have you ever had that for Christmas? You know, some of these traditions, they're, they're so enshrined in our Christmas that they're very difficult to move. And in our family, uh, when I told them that we were planning on having a Christmas Eve service, there was like panic um, on our kids' faces. Now, why is that? What was the big question they were asking? Are we still having our KFC on Christmas Eve? The big tradition in our house is, as Japanese people, we have KFC on Christmas Eve. And I reassured them, don't worry. The service is between 4 to 5 p.m. There'll be lots of time to have KFC on Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, you know, we have the, the, the custom now at Village Church of, of going across to Spring Hill and having a Christmas barbecue there at 8 a.m., the old tradition in our house before I joined Village Church was getting up at six o'clock and opening up Christmas presents. And I remember the first year telling them, telling our family, guys, this year we're not doing that. We're, 
we're going, we're getting up and going to a Christmas barbecue in Spring Hill. They're going, what? No, Dad, you know, we, we open our presents. That's what we do. And it's like, sorry, guys, we've got a new tradition that we've got to give into. Sometimes moving Christmas traditions can be really difficult. It can be really hard. You know, we also have our, our Christmas traditions at church. And one of those big traditions that we have is the Christmas story. We read about that familiar story this, um, this evening in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And the story, you know, it goes something like this. There is a census uh, in the Roman world, and each person has to make a journey back to their hometown. And so Joseph puts his pregnant wife onto a donkey, and they make their way back to Joseph's hometown, which is in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. Um, David, the city of David, as Joseph, he's a descendant of King David. Mary, you know, she's heavily pregnant, uh, and so they go, you know, from hotel to hotel, from inn to inn, looking for somewhere to stay. But the donkey has been either too slow on the road, Joseph has been a bit slack in looking for a um, hotel room in advance, you know, he, he hasn't been on booking.com, um, and so every room in the town is taken. And so they kind of almost get to the last inn. They find this kind innkeeper, and he tells them, look, I'm really sorry, but, you know, our hotel is full, but there's a cave, or there's a, yeah, I know, Kat, I'm the same, like, Kat's had a bit of a yawn there. We've heard the story before. Um, you know, you know, way back, you know, we, we you know, go back, and there's a garage in the back, there's a, there's a cave in the back, and there's a stable in the back there. Just, you know, just, you can, you can have it there. You can have a room there if you want to, because we're all full up in the inn. And so what they do is they, they go back there, uh, they sit in the stable, um, just the two of them, uh, they have the baby in the, you know, in the straw there, and it's, they're surrounded by you know, farm animals, uh, and then finally they take little baby Jesus and they place him into a manger, into a drinking trough, because there was no room for them in the inn, okay? Now, the problem is I'm probably going to destroy um, and become destroy everyone's Christmas this evening. I'm probably going to become um, pretty unpopular this evening. I'm going to be right up there with the, the pooping log or the pooping man. Um, because I don't think our tradition as a church has got it right. You see, there's a couple of things that don't add up in our traditional version of the Christmas story. You see, I think it's implausible to think that Joseph would not have been able to find somewhere to stay. Remember, Joseph was going back to his town, his family town of origin. He would have been able to walk into Bethlehem, walk into the town and say, I'm Joseph, I'm the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, and most homes would have been open to him. Joseph, you know, he was also a royal. His great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was King David. You know, Townsville, if you ever go to Townsville, there's a big sign in Townsville that says, capital of North Queensland or for North Queensland. But everybody in Cairns knows that Cairns is the true capital of far North Queensland. Isn't that right? Oh, we've got a yes down there. We don't have very many Townsville folk here to save things. That's probably a good thing. But, you know, everybody knows that. The sign over Townsville may say capital folk, but everybody knows it's actually Cairns. I mean, Jerusalem may have had the official title of being the city of David, but the locals knew better. They knew that Bethlehem was the true city of David. And therefore, it would be preposterous to think 
that the descendant of King David with royal blood could come to the city of David and the only room that could be offered to him was a garage at the back of a house. He would have been welcomed to any home in that time. Also, you know, if you think about it, in every culture, a woman who's about to give birth is given special attention. I remember one year I was at the Thai Burma border and uh, I was with some refugees there on the border. And I said to them, what would you do? We were talking about this Christmas time. I said, what would you do if a pregnant woman came across the river from Burma into Thailand and she was heavily pregnant? What would you do? And they all said, Sam, of course, we would, we would welcome her into our home. Everybody would welcome them into their home. As a community, we would do everything that we could to make sure that that baby is born safely and secure. But what about here in Bethlehem? Is Bethlehem bucking the trend? Are they bucking the trend of every other collective culture? It's something of an insult, I think, to, to a Middle Eastern person to suggest that a pregnant woman married to a descendant of King David is told to go and give birth to a baby in a stable, surrounded by nothing but poop, and animals. If you think about it, Mary, she also had relatives in a nearby village. You know, a few months earlier, you know, Mary's gone to see her cousin Elizabeth, who lived in a hill country of Judea. Bethlehem is just up the road from there. So if you were stuck, couldn't find somewhere to live, somewhere to stay, surely you'd go up the road and stay with your relatives just up the hill. But we say, you know, but Sam. They never, you know, they never had any time. The baby's about to be born. You know, she's traveling on that donkey and she's heavily pregnant. That's, where they, that's why they had nowhere left to stay. That's what the traditional Christmas story says, but it isn't what the text says, because in verse 6 it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth doesn't tell us how long they were in Bethlehem before the baby was born, but surely it was long enough for Joseph to go and find somewhere to stay. And maybe you'd push back and say, but Sam, you know, verse 7 doesn't say that, you know, Mary gave birth to her son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, you know, placed him in a feeding trough. Other translations, you know, say because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, the word that we use, the word that is traditionally translated in, in the Bible, is the word kataluna. It actually means, you know, it's, it's a word that we use for, for the word in. But that's not the word Luke uses in the rest of his gospel. Whenever he's talking about a commercial in, later on in his gospel, he uses a different word. But what, therefore, does it mean to say that there was no room in the kataluma? Well, the word kataluma, it also simply means a place to stay. It can be simply translated a guest room. And that's how, you know, it's translated in our translation of the Bible that we read this evening. A guest room in an ordinary house. There was no room for Jesus and his parents to stay in the guest room in the house because it was probably occupied by some other members of the family. 
But again, maybe we push back and say, but, but you know, surely, you know, a manger, a feeding trough implies a stable. I mean, that's where, you know, feeding troughs are usually put, you know, in a stable or in a barn. But if the feeding trough was in a place like Kingaroy or Kentucky, that would be the case. But the feeding trough is in an ordinary Middle Eastern village. An ordinary, an ordinary Middle Eastern village home in Palestine looked a bit like this. It had two rooms. One room was exclusively for guests, the cattle room and the guest room. But the other room was the family room. It was the room, you know, where the entire family lived and they cooked. And it was a place where they slept. A few steps, you know, would lead them down from the family room to a, a designated area where the animals would be led in at nighttime to help keep them safe, to keep the animals safe, and also provide some warmth for the house during winter. Mangers, you know, were placed in the family living room to help feed the animals. A drinking trough would have been filled with crushed straw. That would have, that would have doubled as a cot. A heavily pregnant Mary and Joseph, they traveled to Bethlehem. Joseph wasn't some bumbling and inept husband who couldn't care for his wife's needs. He got there in plenty of time. You know, Bethlehem, it wasn't some you know, cold, heartless village that abandoned a pregnant mother at her time of need. The people of Bethlehem, they, they offered their best. They welcomed David's descendant into an ordinary home. They weren't put in the guest room because it was already occupied by guests. Instead, they were graciously accepted into the family room of the house. And when it was time for the baby to be born, the family room would have been cleared of all the men in the village the midwife, the village midwife would have been called and other women, other women from the village would have been there to assist and to help with the birth. And when the baby was born, he was wrapped up as the custom in a cloth and he was placed in a manger filled with fresh straw. And as he was, he was more than likely surrounded by warm smiles and friendly family cuddles rather than cows and sheep in a cold, lonely stable. Now, just think about that for a minute. That completely, it kind of completely transforms and changes how we see the picture of Jesus being born on that day 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And if that's all true, what, what does that mean for us at Christmas time? Well, I think it actually just makes Christmas a little bit more extraordinary. The extraordinary Son of God being born into an ordinary home. You see, there's so much around the birth of Jesus that is, in fact, extraordinary. An angel announcing Jesus' birth to a surprised and scared teenage girl a virgin birth, a, a chorus of angels, you know, like we looked at last week, you know, having a, you know, a, a concert on a hillside, a moving star, you know, across the sky. And it's only right that the birth of the Son of God should be surrounded by such incredible events. It was a holy night. 
It was a unique night. It was a specially unique night, never to be repeated ever again. The Savior of the world, our Savior, has come into the world to save us from our sin. And from our perspective, something extraordinary, something incredible is happening. But from a heavenly perspective, the incarnation, you know, the birth of Jesus coming into the world, well, it must have looked spectacularly ordinary, if not downright degrading. The Son of God, the one through whom the whole of the universe is created, the one who was surrounded in heaven by eternal praise and worship, well, it's knit together. He is knit together in the womb of a fallen, sinful creature. And then he's delivered into the world at the end of a bloody umbilical cord. He's gasping for breath. He's, he's nestling in his mother's breast. He's anxiously crying. He's yearning for the comfort of his mother's milk. A mother's tears, a father's uneasy joy, you know, cuddles from relatives, from uncles and aunties going googly, googly, who's a pretty boy, who's a pretty boy? The Son of God being confronted by the most and utmost ordinariness of humanity. And you know, it doesn't just stop there because apart from from Jesus' birth, and that one episode, whatever, Jesus is 12 in the temple, the Gospels tell us very little about the life that Jesus lived before he stepped into the limelight when he was 30 years old. We know he's a carpenter. We know that he attended synagogue regularly. We knew that he read the Hebrew scriptures. We know that he most likely went to school, but that's about it. And the silence from Jesus' early years indicated the majority of Jesus' life was probably marked by being pretty ordinary and unremarkable, at least compared to his later ministry years. Whenever Jesus did start his ministry in his hometown, nobody stepped up and said, do you remember that time? I knew that was him. Do you remember that time we had the swimming carnival and he walked on water, won the race? Or that time he was playing soccer with the kids and he scored those 20 goals in one game? Nobody was saying that. Whenever Jesus started his ministry, people were angry. People were offended at him. They were shocked by the claims that he was making about himself, that he was the Messiah, God's promised and chosen king. You know, whenever the Son of God, he he took on human form, he also took on our ordinariness. He took on an eight-to-five job of having to go to work every day on Monday morning of earning a living, of passing the time, of taking on the role of being a son, of being an elder brother. For much of Jesus' life, his life was much like the scene of that family room in Bethlehem. It was plain ordinary. But what does that mean for us this evening? Well, it means a couple of things. You see, if Christ really is the firstborn of a new creation, if he really is the prototype for what God intended for humanity, then I think we must discover the value in the majority of our lives, much of which is marked by the ordinary and by the mundane. You see, being a follower of the Lord Jesus, it's not about being a miracle maker. It's not about being a trailblazer. It's not about the person who sets themselves apart from others by doing something incredible. 
It's not about being the Australian version of Tim Keller or Don Carson. It's not about being at a spectacular church with a spectacular vision. Rather, you know, being a follower of the Lord Jesus is principally about trusting in Christ's finished work for us on the cross. It's about being faithful in the seemingly ordinary things in life. It's about living faithfully for Christ, living faithfully for Christ, for his glory in everything that we do. Now, I was at a friend's place down in Bendigo a couple of years ago. Um, my friend down there, he was 80 years old. And as I was sitting in his kitchen and having a chat with Clinton, um, we're having a chat. He, he kind of, I looked up at the fridge and on the fridge it said, um, fun day Friday. And I kind of jokingly said, hey, um, Clinton, you know, what, what fun are you going to have on Friday? And he said, oh, Sam, that's actually fun as in funeral. Um, I'm actually playing the organ at a funeral on Friday. That's what the fun is. Um, and he said to me, I have been playing an organ at my church for 65 years. 65 years playing every Sunday at his church. 65 years playing at funerals. Faithfully serving the Lord God in just the ordinary things. And you know, whenever I tried to make a big deal of it and I tried, you know, just uh, talk about it with him, he was just a little bit embarrassed, a bit uncomfortable. And he just dismissed it as just something that he did. And I think we must, you know, also discover the ordinary, just the joy of ordinary things. The joy of ordinary things that are just wrapped up in the extraordinary, powerful work of God. You see, Jesus is our Savior. He, he saves us from our sin. He saves us from death. He saves us from judgment. But he also saves us from a life, a life without meaning and purpose. He saves us from that. And how can we be more attentive to the ordinary bits of our life? How can we be faithful to God in those boring and mundane things? How can we be faithful to God when we're bored? When we're doing the routine things that we always do? What's the first thing that we reach to in the morning whenever we wake up? What's the criteria that we use when we're making a decision? Do we ever actually include God in the decisions that we're making? Is God's will ever a part of the decisions that we make? What do we do in our free time? How do you treat your boss at work? How would your workmates, how would they describe you? What kind of conversations do you have with your family members and with your friends? And when you have a moment, what are some of the things that, where does your thoughts go to? What are some of the things that you dream about? What are some of the things that you think about? In what ways do we need to rediscover the value in and bring glory to Jesus in the more mundane and ordinary things in our lives? I think the second thing is that God delights in working through the ordinary. I, I saw this quote. It's a quote from the, the fourth century um, martyr, uh, Theodotus. He says this, in the incarnation, God chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that people would know it was the Godhead alone that had changed the world. You know, God, he is a far cry 
from performers like Beyonce, who you know, has very specific needs whenever she goes on tour. Um, in her Mrs. Carter tour a couple of years ago, she required that all members of her crew wore 100% cotton all the time. She requested that alkali water would be her choice of beverage that would be served to her and to her crew, but the alkali water had to always be at 21 degrees. And the water had to be served with $900 titanium straws. And that the bathrooms, whenever she arrived at a venue, all the new, they had to have new toilet seats. And also they had to only have red toilet paper at every venue. And without these, meeting these, kind of, these demands, she would refuse to perform. And when it comes to God, God makes no such demands in order to save us and to work in us and to work through us. God is not limited by the unfortunate, by the mundane, by the weak, by the embarrassing conditions of our lives. We do not need to be preconditioned to greatness for God to save us. We don't need to be preconditioned to greatness for God to work through us. You see, we are just, you know, ordinary clay pots. We are like disposable polystyrene cups. We're imperfect. We're vulnerable. We're broken. We're ordinary, yet God has chosen us. He has chosen to put his living spirit into us and to display his greatness, to display his power through our brokenness through our vulnerability, through our imperfections, through our ordinariness. The more ordinary we are, the greater the potential there is to bring more and more glory to God. I like this quote um, from Michael Horton. Um, He wrote a book, an appropriate book called Ordinary. And this is what he says, CNN will not be showing up at a church that is simply trusting God to do extraordinary things through his ordinary means of grace, delivered by ordinary servants. But God will. Week after week, these means of grace, things like praying, things like Bible study, things like gathering together as in fellowship, these means of grace and the ordinary fellowship of the saints that nurtures and guides us throughout our life may seem frail, but they are jars that carry a rich treasure, Christ with all of his saving benefits. God, you know, delights to work through the ordinary, through us. And just lastly, you know, building a church, it's much more like building a cathedral than a sandcastle. You know, sandcastles, you know, like most churches, can look impressive pretty quickly. They can look pretty impressive as a photograph. They can look pretty impressive on Twitter or on Facebook or on a website. Lots of churches, you know, we can be dressed up. You know, pastors can be dressed up pretty pretty, pretty. We can have snazzy t-shirts. We can have flawless worship. We can have all the marks of greatness But even though we have those marks of greatness, they rarely stand the test of time. In contrast, I think churches need to be more like the cathedral, you know, the cathedral here that towers over the city of Cologne in Germany. The construction 
of the cathedral in Cologne. It started in 1248. And it was finally completed in 1880, 632 years after the first stone was laid. And today, you know, it towers over the city of Cologne and it owes its grandeur to the meticulous design, to the patience, to the hard work of many ordinary craftspeople over many years, the majority of whom knew that they would never see the cathedral completed. You see, they were in it not for the short-lived excitement. They weren't in it just for the short-term glory, but rather they were in it to be faithful in the ordinary work that they had been called to do, knowing that their work, as ordinary as it seemed to be, contributed to future glory. You see, the real test of the legacy of village church is not what we look like right now. It's not what we might look like in 10 years. But the real test of village church is what are we going to look like in 630 years time from now? That's the real legacy or until Christ comes back. That's the real legacy. You see, whenever the Son of God was born into our world, he wasn't magically born from you know, angelic fairy dust. Rather, he was born by the Holy Spirit through the womb of an ordinary human being into the cradle of an ordinary household. The extraordinary resting in the crucible of the extraordinary. I mean, our lives may not be typified by moving stars or angelic visions, but the extraordinary spirit of God lives within us. He lives within you. And he lives within the crucible of our ordinary lives. And as he lives there, he wants to make the light of Christ shine brightly through us. Let's pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there are many things around his birth which are just extraordinary and fantastic and incredible and magical. And we give you praise for all of those things. Uh, but Lord, in the midst of it, Lord, we also just give you praise for the ordinariness of his birth, being born into an ordinary home with ordinary parents surrounded by ordinary family members in an ordinary house. Lord, and it's a reminder to us of just how the Lord Jesus is coming into the world and has come into the world to save all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what background we're from. He came, Lord, to redeem us from our sin, but also to redeem us from a life that is just full of mundaneness, a life that just seems to be full of, of no direction, a life with no purpose. So Lord, I pray, Lord, this evening, please redeem us this evening. Please help us to discover what it means to have you journeying with us in the everyday stuff of our lives. Lord, please, we pray, Lord, help us to discover the value of Christ, the value of life, Lord, in our lives. 
Lord, please, Lord, help us to, to know and to celebrate that you delight in working through us, Lord, even though we are ordinary. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for us as a church, Lord, please help us to be committed, Lord God, to be faithful to you, to be faithful to you in the everyday stuff of life so that we may bring more and more glory to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the ways in which you've done that so clearly this year. We celebrate, we give you praise for that. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we go into 2023, Lord, our desire is that we may glorify you more and more through our lives, through the small things that we do, through the small choices and decisions that we make. Lord, please be glorified. May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified, we pray. Lord, I just pray that you might help us also, each of us, to remember that your spirit is living within us. And Lord, may you refresh us. Lord, I pray for many of us who are feeling tired this evening, may you stretch out your hand to comfort and to touch and to heal and to embrace, that you might fill us afresh with your spirit, that you might draw us over these next few weeks, Lord, closer to you, that we might spend time in your presence that we might be refreshed by your spirit and by your grace, we pray. We give you praise and we give you thanks in Jesus' precious name.